Welcome to Managing Marketing and today I'm sitting down with John Oldfield who for 20 years was the membership director of the IPA and is now ambassador of Worldwide Partners, an independent network of agencies um, and you're joining us here in Sydney. Welcome John. Thank you very much, pleased to be here. John, uh, you know, 20 years with the IPA, you must have seen some phenomenal changes uh, based in London there, because really London is one of the two main focuses of advertising in the world, isn't it? After Madison Avenue. Well, 20 years at the IPA was a, was a, a fantastic opportunity and experience, but I ran my own agency for 30 years before that. Wow, okay. So, uh, which I sold and then... Um, I was invited to come and help the IPA address some of the problems that they were facing at the time. Um, and I, together with uh, Hamish Pringle, who was the uh, Director General at the time, um, drafted a plan to move uh, the Institute from a very trade association, laid-back kind of culture to a driving force in advertising and marketing communications globally. Mm. Because it really is uh, quite dominant, isn't it? Uh, you know, you've got the effectiveness awards that, and uh, huge amounts of research um, that they've done work on the uh, quality and, and the financial or economic impact that advertising um, has with the uh, economy in the United Kingdom. There really is an agenda there that uh, is, is focused on building the recognition of advertising, isn't there? The thing about the IPA is, is that it's properly resourced. Right. If you try to do that and it's not properly resourced, you end up with chaos and, and uh, uh, no one having any regard for the value of the outcomes and outputs that it creates. Um, we, are f we were fortunate in the IPA that uh, the members were prepared to pay uh, significant subscriptions, mm -hmm. but they could see terrific value. Um, Although the subscriptions were considered by some to be high, in my view, they were absolutely right because no one ever left. The only people that ever left the IPA were those who were in financial difficulty. Hmm. Um, and we tried to help those in financial difficulty if we possibly could. So the, the IPA's whole culture was based on one simple premise, that we wished to convert the industry from a trade to a profession. Mm. We felt that would impact on talent recruitment and retention. We felt that would impact uh, on the level of fees that clients were prepared to pay. Uh, we felt that would impact on the government's willingness to listen to that which we had to say on behalf of the, uh, the profession. Mm. And all that turned out to be absolutely true. Well, because part of this is that we've seen the whole uh, advertising industry um, begin to be disrupted, haven't we? It's become more complicated. Mm -hmm. um, I th I'm, a, I'm a big advocate of change. Mm. I love change. Well, change, it's inevitable. That's right. But some people try to slow it down, and other people happily allow it to accelerate. And I'm an accelerator, not a decelerator of change. Right. Um, and uh, I believe it's been good for 
our profession mm-hmm. um, and will continue to, to be so. When, when things change very quickly, the clients are in a, a less uh, strong position when they, they're trying to keep up. They need people who are specialist, focused, dedicated to help understand the changes in the marketplace. So you call it a profession, advertising's a profession, which means it's professional, mm-hmm. right? What has made it not be a trade? Because, you know, one of the issues, uh, and I, I was on the uh, board of the Australian Marketing Institute, mm. and marketing yeah. is not even recognised as a profession. In so Australia. What, in Australia. So what makes advertising a profession? And also, because there's no acknowledged qualification mm-hmm. like if you to be a lawyer That's right. you need a legal a recognized legal degree to be an accountant you need a well what you need more than a degree you need a degree to get, and, and, and then you yeah, need, need to, to have be the, accepted by the quality yeah. you need the qualification uh, of, the, uh, of the profession but i'm talking about at the v- most basic level a profession is based around some recognized correct degree yeah. or qualification yeah, you're absolutely right but What's the degree of advertising? What's the degree of marketing? I mean, there's marketing degrees, but they're not required no. to be a marketer. No, it's not. It's not the right degree. You, you can actually become a lawyer without a law degree. You know, you, you can take other degrees yeah. uh, as long as you, you know, get past the bar and get so and get so. Be hard. Yeah, well, my dog model could be got a lot of learning to do. In the UK, marketing is a profession. There is a chartered institute of there marketing. Is. Mm-hmm. And those individuals who are members, who are qualified, who undertake several years of training and qualifications, can reach a position where they are deemed to be sufficiently qualified to be considered a chartered practitioner of marketing. Mm-hmm. That Royal Charter was given to them, I think, about 15, 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. And they've made quite a lot of progress. The Institute of Practitioners in Advertising was granted its Royal Charter a year and a half ago. Wow. That's news that uh, I don't remember seeing splashed around the world. Well, uh, it was it was splashed around the UK a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> I can uh, imagine. But um, because the first thing that you know, the IPA needs to do is to ensure that it's got the resources and facilities in place to deal with the demands that may fall upon it in that role. Mm-hmm. And most people don't understand charter anyway. They don't, they don't think it's meaningless. A royal charter, which is granted by the government in the UK, has a condition attached to it that the members of the chartered body shall have a code of ethics. And that code of ethics shall insist that every individual oh, uh, or company... Uh, so, sorry, John, John, you've already lost half the audience because, you know, ethics in advertising, ethics in marketing. Yes, it's a professional thing. People uh, working in advertising have, <laughs> difficulty, underst- have difficulty in understanding uh, uh, this, but it's true. Um, but the, the thing is, the code of ethics says the practitioner must have regard to the needs of the customer before themselves. Mm. Now we, you know, we've That's talked deep. earlier about transparency. Yeah. We've talked about all kinds of things like trust. Well, do you trust your advertising agent? Do you trust your doctor? Do you trust your lawyer? Do you trust your accountant? Do you trust any of your advisors who are professional advisors who have a chartered qualification? You can, because if they don't uh, comply with the Code of Ethics, they are removed from the register. Have you ever heard of Bell Pottinger? Yes, I read about that. Right. Well, there's a very successful global PR business. 
that was a member in the UK of the uh, Chartered Institute of Public Relations and there were various uh, nefarious activities undertaken in South Africa uh, which were accommodated by the holding company in the UK and when they were investigated and the Institute did investigate them, they hired a law firm to investigate what was going on, they determined that the behaviour was totally unacceptable and contrary to the Code of Ethics. So they removed them from the register. This is a quoted company on the London Stock Exchange. Mm. It was insolvent 10 days later. Mm. Size was not an issue. The fact that they had their registration removed. Yeah. Was a significant sign to people That's no right. longer to be trusted. Correct. Trust. That's what you come back to yeah. each and every time. You can trust a professional to ensure that he looks after you. That's what you'd expect from a doctor. Because they're held accountable yes. by the charter, yes. which is established to set a code of ethics. Yes. So, why is this not more widespread, do you think? Why outside of the UK? This other is governments don't issue them. They do, well, for whatever reason, they don't issue them. Uh, the Crown in the UK issues, but they're issued globally. There are lots of, I mean, the IPA Foundation Certificate Training, which is the first step to becoming an MIPA. Which is offered through the Communications Council in Australia. It is, and it's offered through the four A's in America. Right, so that's getting the, uh, some the, global traction. 200 people took it in January in New York. Mm. Right. Okay. Um, there are more people with qualification, IPA qualifications outside the UK now than inside the UK. 200 people took it in Dubai earlier this year. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm not sure of the numbers, but I'm sure people are taking it here in, in Australia. Mm -hmm. But it's a global qualification. The certification to become a, a, a member takes, takes three years. And the learning log of each individual is retained by the IPA in London on the file servers. So every piece of learning that every individual undertakes is logged. And is it beyond the three years to become qualified, is there also a requirement to constantly update your yes. certification? Yes, CPD, Continuous yeah. Professional Development, is part of the agreement. Mm -hmm. And they have to continue doing what I think is still too few hours. Mm -hmm. But they've got to do 24 hours in a, in a, year. a year. I think it should be 50. I mean, I would certainly wouldn't want to go to a brain surgery that only spends half an hour a week learning how to do the latest technique in brain surgery, would you? Uh, and especially because we do work in a, and I'll jump on board here, a profession mm -hmm. that is undergoing significant transformation, mm -hmm. significant uh, expansion in complexity and, and, uh, and the like, that would require a significant investment of time just to keep abreast of. Advertising and marketing communications is a knowledge-based profession. Mm -hmm. No argument. If you're operating in a knowledge-based profession, I think you will fail if you do not possess a learning culture within the business, mm. be that agency or the marketing side of the client's business. If you adopt a learning culture, you should put in place measurement and qualifications are evidence and measurement of learning. So the whole concept of the professional qualifications that are available globally from the IPA mm. to uh, independent agencies, just as much as, as networks, um, they are designed 
to ensure that anybody can keep up to speed at the cutting edge of whatever discipline uh, they specialize in and have clients recognize that fact that they are differentiated from individuals who just enjoy the job that they do but do not possess any qualifications mm. and cannot evidence their learning. Certainly, it's not unusual in the UK for an agency to go to, on a client pitch and say, the team of people working on this project have between them 4,800 learning hours logged on the IPAs. They've taken 27 examinations of qualifications and nine of them are members of the Institute. It's important that you ask the credentials of the individuals who will be working on your account from the other agencies that you're talking to. So it is an individual-based certification, it's not a company-based certification. You're correct. And the reason for that is moral compass is something that is vested in an individual. It's very difficult to vest moral compass in a corporate entity. Mm. The people change, things get ignored. Things happen, look at Facebook and all those things. So things change. So, so, but if a person sticks to the moral compass that they possess, uh, then you're on safer ground. So one of the things we've seen, John, in the last you know, few years, probably, probably more years than people are willing to admit, is the move of management consultants into marketing and advertising. Mm. And some of them are doing that by acquisition. Some are doing that by recruiting. Mm. Some of them are just moving into the uh, the area and saying, mm. you know, hanging up a shingle and saying, mm. "We're marketing and advertising uh, experts or consultants." Um, is there been a growth of interest? Do you know of amongst the management consultants in becoming certified? Well, there is a, uh, I think there is a chartered institute of management consultants, which is different to marketing and advertising. Correct. So th th my view is that they will respect the institute and the, what it delivers for them. You know, they've had a good run. Management consultants are, by and large, you might expect it. They're successful organisations. If you're going to spend your life telling other people how to be successful, you won't last very long unless you too are successful. Yes, yeah. So, they, so you expect them to make the right decisions. Um, and they do have a, 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 a chartered... Um, uh, yeah, there is a chartered board. Uh, uh, management, yes, that's right. Management so I think, I think they will participate in the IPA's uh, program with enthusiasm. Mm. Um, I, I have absolutely no qualms about management consultants widening their service remit to include advertising and marketing communications if it's an important part of their advice to their client on how to restructure and reappraise their business models. Yeah. I think that's perfectly reasonable. I think agencies should take a leaf out of their book and should start looking at the measurement of results and, and outcomes rather than just the delivery of a particular campaign. So I look forward to the day when agencies are hiring management consultants to work inside as head of their planning and strategic insight operations. And the difference between the two may not be as great as you might imagine in a few years' time. You, you've brought up a very good point because one of the things that uh, we've noticed is that the advertising industry profession is very focused on creativity and the management consultants are very focused on financial results. Mm. Now, there's a unspoken part of that which is creativity as the tool of financial results mm -hmm. but the industry doesn't often get past that do they it's often the 
creativity almost appears sometimes as a, you know, not a means to an end, but an end itself. itself. Yeah. Um, I think it's inevitable that creative people often uh, spend a great deal of time um, extolling the virtues of that which they contribute to the party because of the, the, the character, style, if you go, if you like, of those people. That's how they're built. Um, and that's less likely for, for someone who is a, a highly detailed, analytical, um, right-brain thinker. Because uh, I... I saw online there's a website that gives you a list of all the creative awards you can enter mm. and globally it's about 700 yeah 700 awards you know and it always cracks me up because you know what do you know the history of the academy awards it was actually started by i think it was louis b may or may Mm. one of the movie moguls of hollywood he was having union trouble getting his house built so he got together with all these chums, all the movie moguls at the time, and they sat down and they said, we've got to get distract these unions. Let's form the Academy of Motion Pictures, Arts and Sciences and have an award show. And while they're so busy worrying about who's winning what, we'll be able to get all these changes made so that the, the ground is better for us. Distraction theory. Yeah, and I'm wondering <laughs> if all these creative awards aren't a bit of a distraction theory because as you just said, creative people naturally want to champion and talk about and celebrate and be acknowledged for the mm. thing they directly contribute to. Mm. But as the industry almost created this uh, focus and obsession with creative awards. Mm. Oh yeah, interestingly, the, the leading um, institute for advertising, in my view, in the world, the IPA has no creative awards. No, we but they do. They do spend a lot of money proving financial effectiveness yes, from we creativity. We're famous for our effectiveness awards. I must stop saying our. I've, re I've retired. I must stop saying our <laughs> creative awards. The IPA. It's okay. You can feel naturally proud <laughs> about twenty years invested in the IPA. Yeah. Okay. And, and although the FEs, you know, are, are a step in that direction. They're not as robust as the IPA's awards, which will take a team of five people three months to produce. Yeah. It's a significant investment. But those agencies that can demonstrate the effectiveness of that which they do, yeah. generally are very, very successful. Yeah. Les Burnett and, um, and Professor Field, all the work that they've done with the IPA, because all the data that they are analysing and extracting is IPA data. Mm. Um, and, and we work, they work very, very closely with the IPA. Proves um, that uh, creativity is is important, but consistency is just as important. Mm. So changing the campaign every every two minutes is not necessarily. It might be what a new marketing director might like to do when he turns up and wants to change everything and take credit for. Often the worst thing to do. That, that's an interesting thing that to raise there because uh, you know. We, we talk about the golden era of advertising, the 60s, the 70s, even to early part of the 80s, was an era of brands and campaigns that mm. had were built over time, you know, and they became so well known and so, mm. you know, trusted yeah. because of that consistency. Yet it's often hard to think of campaigns today that have that same longevity and therefore the same level of trust. That's it? right, it is. And, and the reason, I mean, I'm biased. I come from an agency background. But my view is that's absolutely the fault of the clients. 
for changing things far, far too often. In those golden days that you refer to, the agency head used to deal with the chief executive at the client. Mm. And they agreed what they were going to do, and then they let everybody get on with it. And they didn't turn up thinking of something to change because they had other things to do. Whereas a marketing director has nothing else to do mm. but think about what can we do today to change something to try and make it better. But change in itself can actually have negative impact. Uh, leaving things alone uh, to grow and naturally develop is often uh, a far more successful strategy. But that isn't how uh, marketing uh, chief marketing officers are rewarded. They're rewarded for launching new campaigns and doing new things and new products and making everything change. Well, I think that the, there's a belief that being busy is part of being essential because if I'm so busy I've got back-to-back -back meetings all day and I've got lots of projects happening mm. that must mean that I'm essential to the process well I've seen a lot of activity which is nothing else but destroy shareholder value mm. too, too much activity in my view almost inevitably destroys brand value and shareholder value one of the issues that we have um, is that when we want, you know, clients will often brief us, we want an agency that uh, is really focused on results and effectiveness. And when we go to the agencies and have the conversation about what they can present mm. as far as you know, effectiveness of the campaigns, they're often left short in being able to supply that. And the three reasons are the client didn't brief any of the work based on an expectation or measure of performance. Yeah. You know, please do this because this is what we want. Yeah. And so there was no KPI or objective set that the campaign ran mm. and the client didn't have any measures that they could share with the agency. Mm. And to that point, the third point is the client didn't feel that they could trust the agency enough with the confidential results of the campaign. Now, they seem to be three incredibly uh, flawed mm. pieces of thinking there. I have a very simple philosophy when it comes to what, how clients and agencies should choose one another. Mm -hmm. There are two criteria, in my view, that have to be satisfied. Satisfy these, and you can go on to the creative and the strategy and everything else. But the, the two things you've got to get right first, and this is about how clients shortlist. Mm -hmm. The first is you've got to find agencies on your shortlist who can prove they understand your business. The second is you like them. No client ever gave business to an agency they didn't like and they thought did not understand their business. Mm. If you can find, if a client can find an agency yeah. that they get along with, that there's some synergy there, that uh, they speak the same language and it's apparent from their experience, their knowledge, their insights and their conversations that they do understand their business, then let's look at the creative and let's look at everything else. But if you don't have those two in place, I think the rest of it is a complete waste of time. And look, I personally, from you know, 18 years of uh, matchmaking, yes. um, it's <laughs> chemistry, that alignment of culture and expectation mm. is more important Absolutely. than getting your business. Because I will get your business, 
Uh, if you allow me in to actually get your business. I think the biggest mistake is a lot of clients we've seen have said, we want an agency that understands our business. Now, the, an agency can make the mistake of going in and playing a, you know, oh, uh, we know all this about your category and your business, and all they have to do is wrong foot one thing, mm -hmm. misinterpret one thing, mm -hmm. and the client will immediately think of them as arrogant or misinformed or, mm -hmm. or something like that. You know, it's interesting because going back to management consultants, they never go in with a, here's what we think about your business. They go in with a series of questions about the business. Now, those questions are informed from their knowledge of the they, category. They and they go, do, yeah, do you have a problem with this? Do you have a problem with distribution? Do you have a problem? You know, yeah, these are the five big issues in your category. Yeah. Which one's the one that's causing the most pain point? Well, they prove they know the category and the business. Well, that's what I'm talking about, demonstrating you understand the, the issues facing the client. John, I've seen so many agencies who have said, you know, what's your category knowledge? And they'll go in and start telling the client in the chemistry meeting exactly what's wrong with their business. Mm. And it's crash and burn. Yes. It's like walking into the firing squad wearing a target yeah. on your chest going, shoot me, shoot me. No, you've, got to, you've got to, it's all about asking questions. And th but those questions need to be relevant, informed questions about the issues that the client is facing or is about to face. And it may well be that the client, at the level you're dealing with, may not be aware of some of the issues That's that right. are coming down the pipe. So you've got to be careful not to tread on, on people's toes, but at the same time, you need to earn the respect of the client that you as an organization do have a contribution to make to his business, and you know things that not that he may not know, but other could agencies be, could be incredibly valuable. Absolutely, um, you know, I always say the smartest person in the room is not the one with all the answers, but the one with all the good questions, mm. because they're the ones that actually understand what's going on. You don't need the answers; you just need those questions. And the most powerful person in the room is the person who says nothing. Exactly. <laughs> it's not very professional, though, is it, to go in and start telling someone. What's wrong with their business? No, I, don't think you should, no I, do, I certainly, I'm not encouraging anybody to tell them what's wrong with the business. That is foolish beyond belief. But it happens. Oh, I'm sure it does, but it is extremely foolish. Mm. Uh, they need to identify the issues, they need to ask questions about those issues, and they need to demonstrate that they know the right questions to ask. And it, historically, I've been going back a long time, um, before I went to the meeting, I used to actually. Uh, do a bit of telephone research. I used to talk to people on the phone in, the, in that sector, people who didn't know, I just rang up. I rang a chief executive of a few other companies mm. and asked them uh, a couple of questions where I'm doing a bit of research on this, could you help me? Um, and you find out an awful lot about how the potential client is perceived, whether they're frightened of that particular uh, business, whether they think it's gonna make an impact in the sector or whether they're dismissive of them. Um, that's the sort of thing I, I would always want to, to know how they are how they're perceived by their peers in their in their own sector mm. um, because that's a short that's a shorthand for finding out exactly where the potential and the problems lie because if you find that the, the client that's talking to you is universally feared because they are brilliant at everything they touch then you know you know how to deal with it uh, yeah, one of, one of the other differences that we've noticed from management consultants to agencies is that even in a world where marketers are not sharing uh, 
growth objectives or performance or whatever. You know, they're mm-hmm. briefing stuff activity in yes. without the context or framework of yep. growth. Yep. Agencies are always thinking about activities to grow the business. So, you know, agencies focus on top line growth. Yes? Because they feel like they're the value creators. As opposed to management consultants who look at profit increase mm. by reducing cost. And I'll, I'll share with you a, a terrific story. Zero-based budgeting. Okay? Yep. We have had a, a number of clients that have phoned us up, marketers, and said, We're, uh, our company's working with uh, management consultant X, I won't name them, who's come in with zero-based budgeting, and you can tell by their approach that what they've done is said to the CFO, I'm going to reduce your marketing spend by 30% by introducing ZBB. Mm. And it's not about what ZBB is about, which yeah. is investing in growth. Yeah. It's purely about cost reduction because they say things like, oh, you're working to non-working ratios seem to be wrong. And we're talking about website development. And I'm going, there is no media component to the website. Yeah. So, you know, is, is that also something that agencies have got to be aware of? That there's two parts to this. There's top line growth and there's cost reduction. The short, the short answer is is yes, they've got to get a grip of, of both. But I've always been struck that whenever a management consultancy submits a recommendation report, the last number on the last page is the profit figure in five years' time. It's yeah. The, it's what's going to happen. Well, because that justifies their fee. That's right. Of course it Seriously. does. Seriously. <laughs> The last, pe- the last number on the last page of an advertising agency's report is the cost of the campaign. Exactly. And that is, in essence, why agencies have to modify their thinking, modify the profile of the services they deliver, uh, and, and change clients' perception that they're not here in the short term to make money off the campaign, they're here in the long term to build shareholder value for the client. Mm. And there are lots of independent agencies that that do that, that have that philosophy, um, and they're very successful. Um, But it's a changing uh, environment. 10 years ago, it was very rare. Five years ago, it was emerging. I know from experience there's a lot of agencies that I know who do presentations where they talk about the outcomes in years two, three, four. Um, and it might be in terms of bottom line or it might be in terms of brand share and so on. And they'll do comparisons on share price. Mm. Um, well, they, it's called framing, isn't it? Yes, it's it is. actually Absolutely. framing the service that you're providing in the context of the a benefit that, that yeah. you're, you're aiming for delivering. Yeah. Yeah. I think it was Crispin Porter many years ago who had a new business philosophy that just said, whatever you want in terms of success, we'd like to be paid the same. And uh, there was a client that came in, I think it was Mercedes that uh, came in um, and wanted what the fee was. And he said, I'll show you the cost of the running the team mm-hmm. plus four or five percent just to, to cover that. And then we want $30 per registration. Every vehicle, every Mercedes registered, we want $30. Mm-hmm. Um, and the first part is non-negotiable. Let's negotiate whether it's 30 or 27. 
and they were getting the business. Hmm. And there was another guy turned up for an energy company. Now, he'd been brought in on a two-year contract to move the share price from point A to point B. Yeah. So they went in and said, when you get the share price to point B down the road, you get to vest four million. Yep. On that day, we'll work hard, to cover our costs, we will work hard to achieve that with you. We want to vest a million. So we want paying shares. Now, this is a conversation you can only have with the CFO. Correct. Because, well, and no. yet, the CEO, CFO, or CEO? C CEO and CFO, because yes. the CFO will absolutely get return on investment. Absolutely. Right? But the CFO's representatives in these conversations at the moment is procurement, mm. and procurement is incentivized to Got reduce costs. Cost. Yes, right. Not, and, and the reason I say that is I know of a similar deal, a new product launch, where the agency said, we'll do it at cost. Mm. And then we want, once you, once you hit your break-even point, we want incremental cents in the dollar. Yes. And procurement worked out the numbers and said, oh, you'll get paid too much. And yet the agency was taking all the risk. Yeah. You know, for all but the things mindset, that can... It's your mindset. I don't, you can't blame procurement, people who work in procurement, for that mindset for... But that's it, what they're incentivised for. Absolutely. If they don't deliver savings, yeah. they're not... They're not often incentivized for growth because that's the role of marketing. Marketing's there to Absolutely. grow, sales is there to grow, you know. Well, if they step back for a moment and say to themselves, do I use the same criteria for buying something really, really important at home? And nine times out of 10, do you know something? They don't buy the cheapest. They'll be running Ooh, around. I, I can introduce you to so I'm, sure, I'm sure there are some. Okay, if you're choosing a no, brain... No, you're right. You're if you're right, choosing yeah. a brain surgeon for your daughter, do you choose the cheapest brain surgeon in town or the one that's got the great success rate who might be a lot more money? And I know, and you know... Yeah, you always choose the you, best person for the job, right. not the cheapest. And yet, and yet, when they're choosing agencies, do they choose the cheapest or the best person? What they do is... They pretend that the cheapest is the best person for the job. Mm. Yeah, because uh, there's a part of that is that's commoditization, yeah. which is a whole separate conversation. Because I've just noticed the time. Thank, <laughs> thank you for uh, sitting down and uh, talking to me on the, this. I have got a, uh, a final question, mm. which is of you know, over that uh, twenty years in the at the IPA as uh, membership director and seeing all of those fabulous campaigns. Do you have a favourite?